sister James Brown, soul brother number one, always fighting. Now I'm fighting for your life. I'm fighting for your life because if you use drugs, you better leave it alone. Drugs are contagious. They're killers. Every drug is a killer. Stay away from drugs. Drugs will take your life away. And if you want to live, stay away from drugs because they are super bad, super bad, super bad. Super bad. Super bad. All right, we are back. And you know what's funny is that Bernie Sanders withdrew from the race a couple of days ago, and that's kind of a, you know, hardly even a page one news story at this point. It is my great hope that those who um, put so much faith and, and, and so much of their hopes in Bernie Sanders will not feel uninspired and walk away from the coming political race because this November election assuming we actually hold one, is going to be very, very important. Many predicted that when Donald Trump assumed the office of the presidency, that disaster would befall us. And there are some who think that what we're seeing right now is an example of exactly that. Let's go back to that story about KUOW in Seattle. The station cited three recent examples of falsehoods from the president. Trump declaring that no one knew a pandemic of this proportion was coming, despite repeated warnings from the intelligence community. Trump claiming there were few empty shelves in stores, despite local reports of many being out of supplies. And Trump's announcement that the drug chloroquine would be available almost immediately to treat the virus. Said the station, the president claimed incorrectly the FDA had fast-tracked approval of its use to treat COVID-19. There isn't current medical evidence of the efficacy of that drug in treating COVID-19. And I'm sorry, we do need to do a little review from time to time of the president's track record on statements made. So I want to thank Pablo for sending us a little reminder of some of the statements that have come from the White House. January 20th, I know more about the viruses than anyone. Two days later on January 22nd, We have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China. It's going to be just fine. February 2nd, we pretty much shut it down coming in from China. February 24th, the coronavirus is very much under control in the USA. Stock market starting to look very good to me. February 26th, there are 15 cases in the US. Within a couple of days, it's going to be down to close to zero. On the same day, February 26th, we're going very substantially down, not up. March 4th, if we have thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that get better just by, you know, sitting around and even going to work, some of them going to work, but they get better. The next day, March 5th, I never said people that are feeling sick should go to work. Same day, March 5th, the United States has, as of now, only 129 cases and 11 deaths. We're working very hard to keep these down. Omitted from this list are the times when, after calling up Sean Hannity to say that he didn't think that New York needed 30,000 ventilators, when asked by a reporter two days later in a press conference about that, he said, I never said that. And there's also the time when he was asked, I'm not sure the date on this, I think it was in March, how he rated his own performance on a 1 to 10. Without batting an eyelash, as, as you knew he would, he immediately shot back a 10. And then we have an analysis by Stephen Collinson of CNN we need to go over just a bit. This comes from April 8th, 2020. Said Mr. Collinson, 
The chaos and confusion rocking President Donald Trump's administration on the most tragic day yet of the coronavirus pandemic was exceptional even by its own standards. Trump set out Tuesday, that would be April 7th, to cement his image of a wartime leader facing down an invisible enemy. But instead of putting minds at rest, Trump's wild performance instead put on display many of the personal and political habits that have defined his tumultuous presidency. It was a troubling spectacle coming at such a wrenching chapter of national life, the kind of moment when presidents are called on to provide consistent level leadership. To begin with, Trump sparked concern that he will prevent oversight of the disbursement of economic rescue funds by removing a watchdog official responsible for overseeing the $2 trillion package. The move, coming after Trump ousted an intelligence community inspector general last week, was yet another sign that an already impeached president is using the cover of the worst domestic crisis since World War II to further erode constraints on his power. He also announced he was placing a very powerful hold on funding for the World Health Organization, even though it correctly identified the scale of the virus, and he didn't. Then moments later, he insisted he did no such thing. Adding to the sense of farce, White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham was moved out without ever having given a briefing. CNN reported Tuesday that her replacement, Kylie McEnany, recently said that thanks to the president, we will not see diseases like the coronavirus come here. Now, one thing we intend to stress on this program, as long as we have a program, is that the president cannot be allowed to shift the blame for his own bad behavior and worsening of the crisis onto others. He has a lifelong habit of doing this. It is predictable that he will do this, and indeed, he already has. In the, Collinson, in the Collinson article, it was noted that with the pandemic taking a tighter grip on the U.S., Trump has taken vigorous steps to cover up for his, for his multiple statements earlier in the year by downplaying the virus. The question of his responsibility for a lack of preparation for the crisis intensified on April 7th when the Times revealed that a top economic advisor, Peter Navarro, had written a memo to the president in January warning coronavirus would become a full-blown pandemic, causing trillions of dollars in economic damage and risking the health of millions of Americans. The president now maintains he did not see the memo or memos until several days ago. Said Trump, I didn't see them. I didn't look for them either. When asked why he did not level with Americans about the potential impact of the crisis, if his unexpressed thoughts aligned with Navarro, Trump said, I'm not going to go out and start screaming this could happen. I'm a cheerleader for this country. I don't want to create havoc and shock. The piece goes on. Unlike the president, the World Health Organization has warned for weeks about the gravity of the coronavirus. The WHO declared a public health emergency of international concern on January 30th after sending a team to Wuhan to meet Chinese leaders. On that same day at a rally in Michigan, the president said of the virus, we think we have it very well under control. But on April 7th, the president lashed out at the global health body, claiming it had underplayed the threat of the virus and that he had got it right. Said the president in his briefing, we're going to put a hold on money sent to the WHO. We're going to put a very powerful hold on it. They called it wrong. They missed the call. They could have called it months earlier, Trump said adding, it's a great thing if it works, but when they call every shot wrong, that's not good. 
Given the president's long timeline of false statements and predictions, that must go down as one of the most audacious comments of his presidency. And it was also reflective of his own tendency to nominate an enemy and accuse it of the very transgression that he is accused of perpetrating. Added to the confusion by then denying he had said he would halt funding to the WHO, a move that would be counterproductive in a pandemic, hello, and would undermine already compromised perceptions of U.S. leadership on the crisis. Said the president, I'm not saying I'm going to do it, but we're going to look at it. And noted factcheck.org. More than once, President Trump has falsely claimed that the federal stockpile of emergency medicine and supplies he inherited from his predecessor was, quote, an empty shelf, unquote. While the government does not publicize all of the contents of the repository at the time Trump took office, the Strategic National Stockpile, as it is formally known, reportedly contained vast amounts of material that state and local health officials could use during an emergency, including vaccines, antiviral drugs, ventilators, and protective gear. Dr. Tara O'Toole, a former Homeland Security official during the Obama administration who is now executive vice president at the nonprofit strategic investment firm InQtel, told FactCheck the SNS was definitely not an empty shell. At least three times in the past week, Trump has sought to blame former President Barack Obama's administration for the current state of the stockpile, which has been unable to meet the demand for additional supplies expected to be needed to treat people with COVID-19. During a White House coronavirus task force briefing on March 26th, Trump mentioned the number of respirators, face shields, and ventilators that have so far been distributed by FEMA. Said the president, we took over an empty shelf. We took over a very depleted place in lots of ways. The National Strategic Stockpile was created in 1999 during the Clinton administration. As of April 2nd, it was described on a Department of Health and Human Services website as the nation's largest supply of life-saving pharmaceuticals and medical supplies for use in a public health emergency severe enough to cause local supplies to run out. That description was later altered to say, the strategic national stockpile's role is to supplement state and local supplies during public health emergencies. The change was made after Trump's son-in-law and White House advisor Jared Kushner said on April 2nd, the notion of the federal stockpile was it's supposed to be our stockpile. It's not supposed to be for state stockpiles that they then use. You know, and I had to pause when I read that and think about it and say, you know what, that's, that's so true. If you're going to have a stockpile, how can you have a stockpile if you use the stuff up? Anyway, if you want, you can take the time to look up an NPR science correspondent Nell Greenfield Boyce's report from June 2016 a half year before Trump was inaugurated in January 2017. In her article about the warehouse that she toured, she described the shelves as being the opposite of bare. Said Dr. Tara O'Toole, one of the reasons for the current supply shortage is we've allowed our own national capacity to manufacture things to degrade and in some places to go away. And we've done that for cost efficiency's sake. She added, what we need is not a big stockpile. We need a new strategy. We need to use the technologies we have now to create the capacity to respond to something in close to real time. That means to be able to rapidly design and manufacture what we need when we need it and the quantities demanded. Hello? Even Mark Thiessen, former speechwriter for George W. Bush, a very conservative commentator noted in the Washington Post some days back, 
Questions need answering. Why did our early warning system fail, allowing the virus to enter our country and spread faster than our ability to contain it? Why didn't the FDA have a system in place to rapidly develop and deploy testing capabilities, costing us six critical weeks during which the virus could have been contained? Why didn't we replenish our national stockpile? And why did we allow the outsourcing of critical medical supplies, leaving us without the domestic capability to rapidly produce personal protective equipment, testing swabs, and ventilators? Noted Thiessen, it required no imagination to foresee today's coronavirus pandemic. In November 2005, following the SARS and avian flu outbreaks, I worked on a speech for President George W. Bush outlining our national pandemic strategy. He warned, scientists and doctors cannot tell us where or when the next pandemic will strike or how severe it will be, but most agree at some point we are likely to face another pandemic. He should have said, all agree, said Thiessen. Yet here we are, 15 years later, caught unprepared by this pandemic, which we knew was coming. By the way, you might be entertained by the fact that uh, China imported 2 billion face masks in a five-week period starting in January, roughly equivalent to two and a half months of the global production. It's now become an exporter, and it's ramping up production to 10 million masks a day. And you know, a lot of people are taking a look at the strategic national stockpile and how it's being distributed, and well, let's just say there's some questions arising. Writing in nymag.com, Matt Steeb said, politics seems to have infected the federal response to this disaster. Some states with Democratic leadership have struggled to get what they need from the SNS, the country's emergency supply of masks, drugs, and other medical equipment. Massachusetts received 17% of its order and Maine 5%. Then there's Florida, where Trump resides, which has a staunch Trump ally for a governor. Its request in early March, which included 430,000 surgical masks and 180,000 N95 respirators, was delivered in full within three days. A week later, a second identical shipment arrived. Writing in the New York Times, Michelle Goldberg said Trump is deploying his Ukrainian playbook at home. He used the holdup of U.S. military aid to Ukraine to try and extract a sham investigation into Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. And now he's dangling the promise of medical supplies to make blue state governors say nice things about him. Trump isn't just feeding his ego. He's getting help with the November election. Another little sidelight issue to this, uh, this whole fiasco is what happened on the USS Theodore Roosevelt when its Navy commanders said that decisive action is required to contain the spread of the coronavirus among his crew. He got fired. The Secretary of the Navy has subsequently uh, stepped down in the wake of his criticisms of the commander, Captain Brent Crozier. But I'm wondering in the meantime, what are they doing for the sailors on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt? We hope something. By the way, another reason this correspondent is dubious that we're seeing the worst of this or we'll see the worst of this very soon is the fact that um, this disease has really not gotten on track in rural America yet. Lois, partially writing in Vox.com, noted that given their smaller, more scattered populations, many rural communities might think this pandemic will pass them by, but they will likely be hit later and harder. COVID-19 clusters are springing up in small towns in the South and Midwest. And because rural America has a drastic shortage of ICU beds and doctors, not to mention hospitals, as well as a population that tends to be older and sicker than in urban areas, its death toll could rapidly accelerate. You may have noticed also the state of Louisiana, a much smaller state than California, is right behind us in the number of cases and catching up the number of deaths. Perhaps letting the Mardi Gras go forward as planned without restriction was... A bad idea.
And you may have seen those videos on YouTube of the various revival meetings that are going on down in, uh, I think, near Baton Rouge. Hundreds of people in a tent, praying, slathering all over each other. That's going to turn out to have been a bad idea. Now, I have experienced a bit of comedy relief in the past uh, few days, looking at some of the things that the White House is saying and having a good friend of mine who used to live in a communist country. Note that our leadership here is just like theirs was back in the bad old days under communism. I don't suppose too many of Trump's supporters would appreciate his being compared to, say, Nicolae Ceausescu of Romania. But I gotta say, those little clips of you know, such dictators making ridiculous pronouncements that everybody knew was false and getting away with it because no one was going to challenge them, well, that stuff looks a lot less amusing now. Let's take a jump into an op-ed piece by Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times. Under the headline, Jared Kushner is going to get us all killed, we have this. Reporting on the White House's herky-jerky coronavirus response, Vanity Veris Gabriel Sherman has a quotation from Jared Kushner that should terrify all Americans, particularly New Yorkers. According to Sherman, when New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said the state would need 30,000 ventilators at the apex of the outbreak, Kushner decided Cuomo was being alarmist. He said, I have all this data about ICU capacity. I'm doing my own projections, and I've gotten a lot smarter about this. New York doesn't need all the ventilators. Now, of course, in a lot of countries, you know, say non-communist countries, you'd expect the president would put in charge of the national response to an emergency someone other than, like, say, their son-in-law. Said Michelle Goldberg, it's hard to believe someone so inexpert could be so arrogant. But Kushner said something similar last week when he made his debut at the White House's daily coronavirus briefing. Quote, people who have requests for different products and supplies, a lot of them are doing it based on projections which are not the realistic projections, unquote. You know, while I think of it, I should mention the fact that his father-in-law did openly speculate during one of those briefings that a lot of these doctors in New York, you know, they may be selling their face masks out the back door. It's easy to imagine a lot of New York doctors getting rich by selling N95 respirators at 95 cents at a crack. Of course, now, with what the market could bear, they might be getting, you know, five bucks, maybe ten. Riches beyond your wildest dreams. Anyway, said Michelle Goldberg, Kushner is now taking on a major role in fighting the epical health crisis that has brought America to its knees. Behind the scenes, Kushner takes charge of coronavirus response, said Politico last week. Said Goldberg, this is dilettantism raised to the level of sociopathy. But we do have to note, in some fairness, that we can't blame all of the respirator fiasco on the current administration. No, it turns out there's plenty of uh, blame to spread around on this one. Nicholas Kulish, Sarah Kiff, and Jessica Silver-Greenberg, writing in the New York Times, noted, well, it seems like, a, seems like months ago, but it was actually on their March 29th issue, that 13 years ago, in 2007, a group of U.S. public health officials came up with a plan to address what they regarded as one of the medical system's crucial vulnerabilities, a shortage of ventilators. The breathing assistance machines tended to be bulky, expensive, and limited in number. The plan was to build a large fleet of inexpensive, portable devices to deploy in a flu, pandemic, or other crisis. Money was budgeted, a federal contract was signed, work got underway. And then things veered off course. A multi-billion dollar maker of medical devices bought the small California company that had been hired to design the new machines. 
the project ultimately produced zero ventilators. That failure delayed the development of an affordable ventilator by at least a half decade, depriving hospitals, states, and the federal government of the ability to stock up. The federal government started over with another company in 2014 whose ventilator was approved only last year and whose products have not yet been delivered. Anyway, I don't want to belabor this piece, but it does note that these ventilators were projected to cost less than $3,000, and the lower the price, the more machines the government would be able to buy. In 2008, companies submitted bids. And they went to Newport Medical Instruments, a small outfit in Costa Mesa, California. Newport was owned by a Japanese medical device company, which only made ventilators. Being a small, nimble company, Newport executives said, would help it efficiently fulfill the government's needs. The contract was officially awarded a few months later after the H1N1 outbreak. In 2011, Newport shipped three working prototypes from the company's California plant to Washington for federal officials to review. In April 2012, a senior Health and Human Services official testified before Congress the program was on schedule to file for market approval in September 2013. After that, the machines would go into production. Then everything changed. In May 2012, Covidin, a large medical device manufacturer, agreed to buy Newport for just over $100 million. Covidin, a publicly traded company with sales of over $12 billion, already sold traditional ventilators, but that was only a small part of its multifaceted business. In 2012 alone, Covidin bought five other medical device companies in addition to Newport. In 2014, with no ventilators having been delivered to the government, Covidin executives told officials at the Biomedical Research Agency that they wanted to get out of the contract, according to three former federal officials. The executives complained that it was not sufficiently profitable. The government agreed to cancel the contract, and things started over. And in 2015, Covidin was sold for $50 billion to another huge medical device company, Medtronic. Anyway, the government did get around to contracting for $14 billion with the giant Dutch company Philips to make ventilators. But it wasn't until last July that the FDA signed off on the new Philips ventilator, the Trilogy Evo. The government ordered 10,000 units in December and it set a delivery date for mid-2020. Anyway, as the extent of the spread of the new coronavirus in the U.S. became clear, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, revealed on March 15th that the stockpile had 12,700 ventilators ready to deploy. The government has since sped up maintenance to increase the number available to 16,600, still fewer than a quarter of what officials years earlier had estimated would be required in a moderate flu pandemic. And in other ventilator news, we have this, dateline April 1st, White House holds off making ventilators deal. The White House had been preparing today, this is on April 1st, to announce amid escalating pandemic that a joint venture between General Motors and Ventec Life Systems would begin producing as many as 80,000 desperately needed ventilators when the word suddenly came down that the announcement was off. Government officials said the deal may still happen, but they are looking at a dozen or more other proposals. Here's the part I like the best. We made mention of this previously on the show. The decision to cancel the announcement according to the government officials, came after FEMA said it needed more time to assess whether the estimated cost was prohibitive, more than a billion dollars. We can't spend a billion dollars for ventilators, but we're bailing out corporations and hotels with a trillion-dollar stimulus package. Keep that in mind as this year moves on. 
By the way, we do want to note that real estate tycoons such as President Trump and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, got a provision in the $2 trillion coronavirus relief package that will let them avoid an estimated $170 billion in federal taxes over the next 10 years. This was inserted by Senate Republicans. That change to tax code was buried on page 203 of an 880-page bill. But is anyone surprised? You know, we got about three or four minutes left in the program. Let's, let's try to do some semblance of regular programming here. Let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for the safest sex of all after New York City's Department of Health issued an advisory recommending masturbation during the pandemic. Said the department, you are your safest sex partner. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for what's described as liberation with the news that Britain's Daily Mail warned women that going brawless for weeks while quarantined at home could damage Cooper's ligaments and cause breasts to sag permanently. And it was an ugly week this last week for pants. They've apparently fallen out of fashion as white-collar workers shift to video conferencing. Walmart executive Dan Bartlett said, we're seeing increased sales in tops, but not bottoms. People are concerned, obviously, from the waist up. And from the Only in America file, we have this. The U.S. plastics industry is using the pandemic to try and undo bans on single-use plastic bags. Eight states and several cities have banned or restricted plastic bags. The industry now blames the bans for encouraging Americans to bring germ-filled reusable bags into retail establishments. And is calling bag bans a public safety risk. Well, you might be able to make the case for that under the circumstances, but let's see things get back to normal. When this is all over, shall we? All right, let's close with this item sent to me by a friend. My wife called me at work and asked, do you ever get a shooting pain across your body like someone's got a voodoo doll of you and they're stabbing it? Sounding concerned, I replied, no. My wife responded, how about now? All right, we'll see if on next week's show we can at least put a half of a regular show together in addition to all this coronavirus news, but there's so much news it's hard not to talk about all of it. And we feel a certain responsibility to do so. This program was produced by Edward McMillan who, so far as I know, has not yet figured out how to continue drinking while wearing a face mask. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. I do have a medical degree, but that's not why you should be listening. You should be listening because we're making some sense, I think. If we're not, let us know. Drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com.